0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And we're so excited that you're joining us this week. We have a super cool interview that I've been very excited to air. Marianne will be joined by Nicola Kagora, aka Chef Kola, who is a Zimbabwean vegan chef who founded African Vegan on a Budget and is also managing all the meals for the Akashinga Rangers, the all female squad of anti poaching rangers working with the International Anti-Poaching Foundation to end the slaughter of elephants and other animals by poachers. She's also doing lots of other cool things to spread veganism in Zimbabwe and South Africa. You definitely don't want to miss this episode. I'm so excited that we're finally airing it. We This has been all the buzz internally here at our hen house.
1: Yeah, I know. I loved this interview. I think everybody's going to really find it fascinating and and really hopeful, which we all need at this moment. On on the flock bonus segment this week, I'll be continuing my conversation with Chef Cola. As always, if you're a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for ten dollars a month at our slash donate. And
0: also to help us get through the pandemic. <laughs> oh my God, we're still in it we're doing our flock Friday Everybody needs to be super, super careful. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Super careful. Yeah, actually, w- before Jen started at our hen house and John was still here, we were doing bots, which is what we call bottom of the show. And at the very, very end, we ended with uh, stay safe out there, wear your mask, social distance. And or, I just remember having this conversation with him in in like March about when we needed to change bots. And we were like, well, let's revisit it in May or something like that. And here we are like a year later. Mm -hmm. Anyway, to help us get through this time, we are still continuing with our wonderful Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern on Fridays. And sometimes we have guests. We do ask the Flock members who come, who do you want to have uh, in conversation? So last week it was David Brooks, who was on their podcast not too long ago. And he was requested by many of the Flock members. And sometimes we just have a chat, but we're always uh, winding up talking about how to refocus on our activism, how to shift it when we need to, how to take care of ourselves and our communities. It's really a great time. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at So before we uh, get to the interview... I wanted to briefly say that I, I had the joy and honor of being on several other vegan media outlets recently to promote my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. I just wanted to point people to it if you haven't already seen it on our social media the really cool podcast called Sentientism, uh, hosted by Jamie Woodhouse, who like really kind of boggled my mind and blew me away. And we're going to interview him soon.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I've been following him on Twitter. He's so, like, he's so good on Twitter. I'm so bad on Twitter. You would think I would be good, wouldn't you? Like, I'm kind of funny. I'm bad, but he is great. And he's always saying these pithy, Not that he's funny. I mean, occasionally, I guess he is, but that's not his focus. But the way he puts things is just so... Make sure to follow him. Sentientism. Yeah.
0: And so I remember sitting down to do this interview with him and he's a listener of our hen house. And we sat down to do the interview, which is video. And he said, so we're going to talk about what's real and we're going to talk about philosophy and we're going to talk about religion. And I was like, dude, I need (laughs) some more coffee. But anyway, he's just a really great mind and I love his podcast. I'm a, I'm, I'm his newest big fan. Anyway, I was also on the Animal Voices Vancouver podcast and radio show. Blast from the past. They've also I, been around. I love Allison. Yes, Allison Cole, the dynamic co-host. And they have also been on the air forever. So that was fun. And it, by the time this episode airs, my interview on Chick Peeps, uh, which I was on once before, will have aired. That is hosted by my friend Ivana Lynch. And and she will be on Our Hen House again soon as well. So lots of cross dipping our toes in both podcasts kind of thing. But with Ivana on Chick Peeps and, and her brilliant co-host Momo, we discussed fat acceptance and body positivity and how it relates to veganism and, and when it doesn't and when it needs to and all of that. So just a few little shameless plugs. I have some other things coming up as well, including... I was interviewed by Robbie Lockie for Plant Based News' podcast that should be airing soon and some other cool things coming out. So I'll keep you posted about that. And you, meanwhile, have been, I mean, I think it's incredible that uh, I, I wish that people could have a little peephole into seeing where and how we record sometimes when I think of the last 11 years of us recording. I have these little things that pop into my head. Like I think I've mentioned this before, but when my beloved grandmother died in 2013, I think it was like. We were in her assisted living facility. There was like this couch in the communal area. And you and I sat on the couch to record the podcast that week. And we were kind of in hushed voices. We, we recorded our podcast on the road, literally in the car while you were driving. And I was holding the mic on two of our cross-country trips. There's been so many interesting moments. And right now we are in your apartment that you just got because your house is on the market and is being sold And your furniture isn't here yet. So we have an an expanded card table and folding chairs that we're sitting in, in an otherwise empty apartment. But by the time this airs, your stuff will have been moved. But for now, it's not. So if people just had like an understanding of some of the
1: circumstances we're in
0: as we're recording, it would be funny. Yeah. And I just
1: have to say, if I say anything ridiculous today, you're just going to have to forgive me because moving... It's so stressful. Oh my God, I don't know which way is up. I don't know where I live. I don't, I'm so confused. And tomorrow all that stuff arrives. And so feel sorry for me, everybody. Well, yeah. So big things for sure.
0: You were just talking about a moment in your life when we used to do two interviews on each episode, not one. And when you were teaching two courses and we were, you were going through the list and you kept saying, how was I doing all of that and working a full-time job when you were still working at the court? And... You know, I I said if you list what you're doing now, it would sound exactly the
1: same. Like we as humans are are doing way too much stuff. Well, it's not even close to what we used to do. I think we were idiots, though, wow. so, or maybe we were just efficient. I don't know. But now I'm either now I'm either much smarter or much less efficient. Wow. But uh, yeah, it it is stressful to do all that stuff. And I will be teaching two courses soon. Though remotely, at least I don't have travel time.
0: Where will you be teaching this semester? I
1: will be teaching at NYU Law School and Cornell Law School, which I've never taught at before. So, yeah, it's both exciting and and scary.
0: Is the Cornell one also animal law
1: or is it like a specific type of animal law?
0: No, it's animal law. Okay, that's exciting. I know in the past you've also taught farmed animal law sometimes, so that's why I asked. It is stressful times. There's also, you know, the world. One of the ways I'm dealing with stress is through paint by numbers, which when I was interviewed by Chickpeeps, they said, how do you manage everything you do? And I said, I, I paint by numbers.
1: Really, I, I've seen you sit and do your paint by numbers, which some people could consider embarrassing, but you don't. <laughs> that was, and it really does. It really like it takes you out of everything. Yeah. Like like you're just it yeah. really does change things for you.
0: You just imagine a little kid or yourself as a little kid just, you know, getting the, the paper and the crayons
1: out and coloring. Right. But I think the paint by numbers might be even, it, it kind of reminds me of how I am doing jigsaw puzzles, which is also kind of a pointless pursuit. Well, not that paint by numbers is a pointless pursuit. It wasn't saying that. But you know what I mean? It's not like, it's it's not really that creative. You're just like following a lot of rules. And there's something so relaxing about that. When I was a kid, because my mom is an
0: artist, like an actual artist, she's incredibly talented, And when I was a kid, she didn't let me (laughs) she didn't let me do paint by numbers and she didn't let me coloring coloring books because she thought they were stifling. And uh, so I feel like now I'm in my
1: it all comes out another another intro to the podcast that is basically a therapy session.
0: All right. okay. Anyhow, I do want to say that. Well, I have a funny story for you. I am a member of Ancestry, which I know I sold my soul to the Mormons, but I'm a member of Ancestry and I did their DNA thing like a year a year or two ago. I found out lots of you know things that I already knew and lots of things I didn't. There's a lot of Eastern European Jew, mostly. There's also Eastern European. I know. There's also Eastern European, which is different than Eastern European Jew. I have Italian. I knew that too. But then there were some other things I didn't know about. Anyway, I one day started clicking on the map of other DNA matches that I have. And I was still living in L.A. I was really missing uh, New York. So I started clicking on people who lived in Manhattan who I was related to. And I was cross-checking their Facebook profiles, seeing if I would find a vegan. (laughs) And I I promise you all, there is a point to this story. Okay. I found this one woman whose name is Katie, living in Manhattan, who is like my fourth cousin or something. And she had vegan all over her page. So I reached out to her. This is like a year ago or so. And we we became friends and we're like the same human being. And she has photos of both of our family members that we both share. These family members, these ancestors. I don't remember how I'm related, but it's like my uncle's cousin's brother thing or whatever. And they are on the boat from Russia. Like she has photos of our ancestors on the boat from Russia, which is so cool. So anyway, she's vegan. She works in media I swear we look alike. And as soon as I posted to Facebook my paint by numbers of this chihuahua that I'm painting, she sends me a text and she had that image hung up in her living room of the same chihuahua. That is so weird. And then she has a chihuahua and, you know, I have like a hundred chihuahuas. Two. Well, two and a half. Lucy's part chihuahua. And the, of course, the other animal who I'm, who I love, well, I love all of them, but pit bulls, obviously... Her sweet rose. And so I was like, Oh, after I finish this chihuahua, I'm going to get a pit bull one." So Katie, my cousin who, who I met through the DNA on ancestry sends me another picture she has hanging up, which is the pit bull one. And I start for like, I'm like, Katie, this is crazy. Like we're, we're the same person. And she said she loved the artist. So I looked up the artist, which I should have done before she said that shame on me. And his name is Dean Russo. And he has all of these, you know, beautiful paintings. Some of them are available as paint by numbers. Some are available string sub puzzles. You could get one.
1: So he didn't do them as paint by numbers. No. Somebody just felt they were very amenable to being right. done by pa- yes. because of the way he paints yes. and turned them into that. I get it. And so it turns out he does chihuahuas and pit bulls and endangered wild animals.
0: I mean, I there seems to be a consciousness here. I have to look more closely into it. But all of this was just a weird story and a way to tell you that I firmly believe we each need to have hobbies that are not related to what we do for a living, that we are not particularly good at. Like, I'm not a good painter at all.
1: I don't think we have to have hobbies that we're not good at. I mean, you know
0: what I mean? Like, I I need to not be a perfectionist
1: about it. And that we're not like, you know, ambitious about and and obsessive about. Yeah, I agree with that. But could be good at them. Well, you sure. Yes. Although my other hobby had been
0: tap dancing and I'm like forever an advanced beginner. I will never, I <laughs> <laughs> will never get better than advanced beginner. Anyhow. Okay. So it's been quite a week. I have gotten through lots of my paint by numbers because I've been so stressed out. And, um, I know a lot of us have, and I do want to say we're recording this like six days before it airs. So, uh, that's just our podcast schedule is complex because there's lots of components, lots of people involved in editing it, lots of moving parts. So, hopefully nothing
1: huge. I am so, I, I don't know what to think about what you know right now. Cause I mean you, the audience, not you, Jasmine, right. because you know so much more than we do. Cause we're all so scared about what's going to happen this oh. week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I hope you're all still there.
0: Okay. I, okay. Wow. This is getting dark real quick. I wasn't sure if we should talk about this or not, but it's really been on my mind. And I guess I just want to briefly bring up something that might be difficult to talk about, but It's that like, obviously this completely horrible act of terrorism happened at the Capitol. I'm still like, I think we're all still reeling from it and, and learning about it and seeing more videos. And, you know, Chris Hayes on MSNBC did this, this 10 minute set. I I tweeted about it if you want to see it on my Twitter, Jasmine underscore singer, no E. And it like blew my mind and like, it's so hard to see it. But one of the things I've also been seeing is that a few of these terrorists who, you know, committed these horrible acts were vegan and were animal rights activists. And I, of course, that's what makes the headlines. And one- I don't think it made headlines, did it? You saw it on Facebook. I saw a couple, yeah, I saw a couple mentions of it. Maybe head, I'm probably in a giant bubble, but like I did see several people talking about it. But the, it wasn't in the news. I think it was mentioned. One of the people was mentioned in the news. Yes, it wasn't like a giant headline. Like when- when, uh, you know, this makes me think of when abusers like parents who abuse their children, like because they starve them, happen to be vegan. And like the headline is like, vegan parents abu- well, abuse their child. It makes me little, think of that.
1: A little closer to the fact because veganism, you know, is related to food. Mm-hmm. And this is just like, you know, yeah. I don't know, just just a fact about this person that isn't really very interesting. Right. I mean, it's interesting for and when anyone is vegan, but... These people, veganism doesn't have anything to do really with what they did in the Capitol, philosophically. Maybe it has something to do with who they are as people. Because, you know, people who are activists, whether in good causes or bad, Mm -hmm. are activists. Mm -hmm. So maybe not totally unrelated. But I was so upset. I was like, I was so
0: upset by seeing this on On several people's Facebook pages. Did you feel like when people say Hitler was vegan? Yes, that's how I felt. And then I saw like, you know, shame on me for reading the comments. But, you know, there I was reading the comments and a lot. No, lot of tell me that's not so. I know, but a lot of the people were like saying, this is why I'm not vegan. This is why I'm not an animal activist. And I was like having a bad
1: day. Yeah, that's why they're not vegan. Right, exactly. <laughs> and like, this is why I'm not involved in that's activism. They sit down to a steak, They think, I'd really rather be vegan. But you know, that guy at the Capitol.
0: Right. Well, that's what like, and and I, I just, I've been, I've, the minute I found out what well, was, this isn't about me, but I took it personally. I took it personally on really? behalf nope. of everyone who's been on our head house, everyone who I know, and myself, and I've been like an animal activist, like, you know, as my calling, as my living, as my passion for 17 years. And I just was so upset that it was being boiled down to this one stupid thing. And I kind of wanted to talk about it on the podcast, partly because sometimes I use the podcast as a place to vent. (laughs) because It makes me (laughs) feel better. So thank you for being on the other end of that. But also because like, What do you do with it? I think you do. I think the answer is you do nothing with it. I think you just kind of like let it be what it is and understand that like we are more powerful as a movement than like this one jerk and people who are going to look at his veganism or the fact that he's done animal activism in the past and they're going to use that as an excuse means like, yeah, they're just a thorn in the side. But what happened was so hideously horrible. I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I felt like there was something messy in there that upset me.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I, know you were very upset about it. I didn't, it didn't strike me as much. But of course, I didn't read the comments, right. which was your first mistake. I know. You know, I want everybody to be vegan. I do, because they eat animals and kill them. And so I want everybody to be vegan. And to me, it doesn't mean, I don't feel any like embarrassment or, I don't feel responsible for somebody's actions just because they happen to be vegan. People are complicated, you know? There are very, very, very good people in the world who do very wonderful things and yet participate in this horror visited upon animals. And I guess that works the other way around too.
0: Yeah, and of course I want to live in a vegan world and that's why I do this uh, work. But I also think it's really bad when like, terrible people are vegan and that gets the headline and I wish that they weren't even though of course there's a problem with my saying that I just because I want everyone to be vegan but
1: man oh, this makes me crazy. It's very similar to the Hitler thing though you know according to historians they they, they do say that he wasn't vegan but people love to trot that out it's It's just people's efforts to justify their own behavior. Don't read the comments. That's yeah
0: exactly right.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay. Well, with all of that being said, let's transition now to your interview with Nicola Kagoro, because I've been so excited for everyone to hear it. Nicola Kagoro is also known as Chef Cola and is a pioneering Zimbabwean vegan chef at the helm of African Vegan on a Budget, which is working to spread awareness of vegan culture across Africa and give people the tools and knowledge to actively integrate plant-based eating into their lifestyles. She is also working with the International Anti-Poaching Foundation and Akashinga Back to Black Roots, a pioneering community-driven conservation model empowering disadvantaged women to restore and manage a network of wilderness areas as an alternative To trophy hunting. Chef Cola serves as head chef for the kitchen, preparing entirely vegan meals and ration packs for the female anti poaching ranger force. Wow! She will be joining Marianne right after this. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food. Maybe it's the animals. Or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor and your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way. And, well, Eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise. To dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you wanna lift a car over your head, sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's jasminsinge dot fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Welcome to our hen house, Chef Cola.
1: Thank you for having me. Hi. It's really a pleasure to have you. I'm really excited about your work. I first heard about it because of your role with the Akashinga Rangers through your organization, Back to Black Roots. So I'd like to start the conversation there, though I know there are other things for us to talk about. And we have had Damian Mander on episode 385 of the podcast. and I think many of our listeners may be somewhat familiar with the work of IAPF, which is the International Anti-Poaching Foundation in Zimbabwe. But for those who are not, can you just briefly tell us who the Akashinga Rangers are and what they do? Okay. So the International anti poaching Foundation has a
2: subdivision called the Akashinga Rangers. And these Rangers are female and they're vegan. So they're the world's first female vegan armed Rangers in the world. And under that subdivision of IPF, me and Damien Amanda came up with a collaboration called the Black to Black Roots and which is a kitchen which is specifically for the Akashinga Rangers. So any female or staff member who works under IPF umbrella, the Black to Black Roots kitchen feeds them. So it's a program that we've been building for the past close to this is gonna be a fourth year coming, and our main focus is on producing vegan plant-based meals for the rangers to do their job and have the energy and the feel that they need to do their job out in the bush. So that's the Black to Black program.
1: If anybody has any question about how much energy they need to do this job, I suggest, which is an enormous amount, it's an amazing organization, and these women really kick ass. So, but if you wanna know more, I would suggest you watch Akashinga, The Brave Ones, which you can find on National Geographic. It's a great short film. But let's get back to the food, which is your main focus of interest. So so how big an operation is this? How many people are you feeding? Uh, that's, that's a really
2: difficult question. Because under the Black to Black Roots Kitchen, we have eight kitchens. So there's different um, areas within the. I'm not in. I'm not an anti I'm not a soldier, so I don't know how to describe these areas.
1: I understand.
2: But then they have different areas that they patrol. So an area can be halfway across the country towards the camp, the, the second kitchen. So we have eight kitchens in general. So each kitchen, for example, our main kitchen, the first kitchen that we built, channels out, feeds a, a number of ranges that equate to 100 ranges every single month. So every single month, we have 100 ranges on that one kitchen. And we channel out breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So to say, like, specifically the number, I'm actually going to, set from 2021, I'm going to document every single meal that's fed under the IPF umbrella because that's like the main question that people are always asking us: how many meals do you feed? And I'm like, it, it depends on the guests on site, what's happening, if the, the rangers are in the bush or if they're actually on camp training and developing their skills or they had to go on a mission. They Sometimes they go on a mission and they've disappeared for two weeks so there's no one to feed on camp besides like a skeleton staff. So it's it's pretty hard.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it does sound complicated, but I just really wanted to let people have an idea that this is a big up. You're yeah. feeding a lot of people. This is not like a little kitchen, like, it, you know people sitting around the table, you're feeding a lot of people every meal, every day. So this is a major operation. And and I would imagine, I know that many of the rangers come from difficult backgrounds, often very poor backgrounds. I'm kind of assuming that most of them, when they arrive, have not been following a vegan diet for all of their lives. So there must be some steps that have to be taken to help them enjoy the food, like to make sure that, that you're feeding them food that, that's going to make them happy and going to make them strong. So so what are those techniques? The thing is that I look
2: at it as a project. The Black to Black Roots is a project that we're running under the IPF umbrella. But then I don't look at it in terms of like a business module whereby there's a project and you have to use tools and techniques to to that will make sure that this will work and anything that you're doing in life, there's game changers. So when I first, I can only speak about my own personal experience. When I first came into that kitchen, I think the ranges, the Akashinga units as a whole was there um, for a year and IPF had been there for a couple of years prior, but then that specific unit was there for a year, the females only. And when they signed up for the program, these rangers, they got into the program and for them to actually make it as an Akashinga Ranger, they had to go through intensive training. And when they were doing this intensive training and Damien and his fellow comrades found these women through the various rural communities, he informed them that this is going to be a program that there's no meat. And in the beginning, he used to um, provide the food as the organization and the rangers would be allowed to cook their own food. And that's actually what happens in most of these ranger units around the world, that these rangers are allowed to cook their own food. And then after a couple of months, um, he realized, no, this is not working. They're not actually, they're they're cooking vegan food. I'm providing the vegan food, but they're not, they're not cooking it right. So with the rangers at first, when I came in, after they had the privilege of cooking their own food, they were not impressed with me. They did not like my food. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. They were like, well, this doesn't make sense to us. But it came a point where we had to meet each other halfway. And one thing that I did was go into their villages, their communities, and going into their communities out of the bush where we patrol and do the anti poaching, I realized that most people in Rosenborg were actually on plant based diets. Why I say that is because. We don't have electricity, and if there's electricity, which is really there, they don't have money to buy meat. Meat is a luxury. So I found out, okay, so if you guys are not eating meat in general, you're already on vegan, plant-based diets, what's the difference between my food and your food? And it was kind of understanding the flavor, the palates, what they like, using their indigenous ingredients. So just because you come from the same country, you can be rural America and suburb. America. You can live in New York City or you can live in a rural rural area in America. So there's a difference between everyone's diets. So we met each other halfway and I found that, okay, traditionally, this is like what they like to eat. Traditionally, they actually don't eat meat. And we have this thing called soy chunks and they call it nyama, meat. And it literally looks like meat. It tastes like meat. And I started incorporating a lot of indigenous ingredients within our menu. And that's how they welcome the plant-based vegan diet.
1: That's a great story. I bet you learned a lot too.
2: Yeah, (laughs) it was humiliating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But but educational, Uh, you know, that, I, I really love that story because, and I love the way you put it, that you met each other halfway, not halfway on whether to be vegan or not, but but halfway on how to make this taste like something these particular people would want to eat. It's a great story. Mm-hmm. And I know that one of the goals here for both Damien and I assume for yourself is not just to feed the rangers and keep them healthy and reasonably happy, but also to get them to spread the word a bit, like to to, to have this project spread the word a bit on on vegan diets. So how does that happen? Do they bring it home?
2: Yes, they do. Why I say that is because like I said earlier, most of these people in rural Zimbabwe, in Africa, and anywhere in general, meat isn't expensive, it's a luxury. If you're managing to eat meat, three meals a day, seven days a week, 365, well done. you're part of the elite group because not a lot of people in the world, wherever you're in the world, are actually having the luxury of eating meat. So, After meeting each other halfway, we started. um, They started becoming more curious and energetic and enthusiastic of what we're actually. How did you make this? This tastes brilliant. I want to learn how to make this. So we started incorporating vegan cooking lessons within the their ranger training. So besides doing training in terms of intelligence or physical PE, they actually have nutritional um, education which they have to do. And it started developing in a bigger scope because the Black to Black Roots collaboration between African Vegan on the Budget and IAPF under Damian Mandler, it comes in in sections. So the first section was to introduce the program to the rangers, IAPF. And then the second section was to introduce it to their families within. So if a ranger was to go home she will start cooking these meals within her own family. After that, we the, our third stage was is, and we are now doing, is to put it into the community, which is the area around the whole IPF. Because when you put an NGO or any organization within um, a community that desperately needs it, everyone kind of, it becomes a sponge and everyone gravitates towards that what's helping us survive, basically. So NGO or governmental is is just the way it is. And then our fourth thing, which we're aiming towards doing, is now building, like, not like, but we're now building community um, CLs, so community liaisons who, they're, they're our brand ambassadors. So the program comes in in stages. So, I think this is, next year we're going into our fourth year. Definitely, that's a fact. And they bring it home by understanding that at at work, either way, I'm there two weeks in or a week out, two weeks in, three weeks, or whichever way it goes, they bring it home by, some of them actually end up getting sick when they eat meat at home, or if there is meat, or they actually become more creative, and then they put it to their families and then into the community and then soon they just become brand ambassadors of plant-based vegan diets. So it's been four years that we've been operating as the Black to Black Roots Kitchen, and veganism, that word vegan, wasn't something that was spoken of, and especially in Rose and Bob, where people were like, what? But now, within the community, having the Akashinga unit and I.P.F. within, operating within that area, we're not going into schools, we're going into clinics. And the schools, for example, we create gardens. We have a lot of garden projects where we just don't go in and put a garden for the people and you can just go grab your vegetables whenever you want. We actually incorporate agricultural programs within the curriculum if they're not there yet. And if they're not there, we go to the government and be like, okay, there's this school particularly, what are the steps and measures that we can take to now introduce this program under your umbrella. So we make sure that we work well with everyone on all sides to for the benefit of veganism and plant-basedness and especially animal rights because one thing that when we go into this program, the kids, especially in the communities and the schools, they always oh, that's so, okay, um, why not meat? Why okay, we know that we have to be nice to the animals, but but we have to eat meat. So what do we do? And that's our chance of educating the the youth. And I like to call it unlearning. For them to unlearn a lot of things that they've been taught that, especially as Africans, of people of color, that meat equals wealth. No, meat doesn't equal wealth. And you must respect your animals and just not kill them just because of the benefits of a poaching industry. So catching them at such a young age, it makes a difference. And even when they go home to to their parents or whoever is raising them, they speak about it. They just go on and on to the extent that the elders start asking, okay, what is this IPF? What is this Black to Black Roots Program? What is veganism? And they start actually, you know, so it's only been four years and I believe it takes about 10 years to actually make a very impactful change in anything so we still have a long way to go
1: it sounds like you're doing remarkable work and it almost sounds like you're taking i mean as you said the the diets are traditionally plant-based but kind of by default like people feel like their diet isn't as good as if they had meat in it but you're taking that and saying no your your diet is better like mm-hmm. just step over that whole step of like that every other culture in the world has gone through of shifting yeah. from plant-based to meat heavy and then realizing that this is not healthy or good. And and that's so powerful that you're you're almost helping people understand that their traditional diets are are the best ones, not not the the poverty ones, not not because they can't, but because they choose not to. And it sounds like you're also working. To improve those traditional diets by making them, as you said, teaching children to grow the vegetables, you know, making them even healthier than they already were.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So uh,
1: let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the state of veganism in Africa. I know Africa is a big place, so you you can't exactly speak to every culture. But traditional diets, really, even all over the continent, really, traditional diets have been plant based. And yet factory farming is being introduced rapidly. Are you seeing a big shift? A big shift in? From 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 the traditional plant-based diets to a heavy meat-eating diet just because that meat is made cheaper by factory farming. I mean, I think we've seen that in so many places. Yeah.
2: I say a very controversial statement that veganism, veganism originated in Africa and it's because of colonization that, we as Africans have so much meat eaten practices and the state of veganism, it's not a big shift from not eating meat to eating meat now in 2020. This is something that's happened because of colonization. And when I say colonization, let's just take our diets, not even anything else, just focus on diets. And someone comes into your, your house and says, listen, you have one cow. In fact, you just have, you have more space to have more than one cow. I can teach you how to grow and have a thousand cows by the end of next month. And they mass produce these thousand cows. Okay, here's the catch, my friend. All of the cows you're going to take back, I'm going to take back home and you have nothing. But then at least I've taken your resources, I've taught you how to mass produce and you've learned. So now, veganism and in the state of Africa, it's not something new that people are learning how to eat meat now. Meat equals wealth is not a statement that just came now. It's been there since probably way before I was born or you were born. It's just that it's, if you gotta go back to your history. So the state of veganism in Africa at this particular time right now is that, from my point of view, is that We now know that meat is not right for us. And we now know that meat is a form of exploitation. Meat is a form of of exploiting your own body because it's not good for you. It's a form of exploiting the animal because the animal didn't choose to just be raised to be slaughtered for your own benefit. It's a form of exploitation. And we're now learning that, okay... This is not good for us. And we're going back to our tradition as Africans of, yes, we used to keep animals. We are the animal kingdom. This is Africa. But we respected animals. And when we did slaughter those animals, it was for something like a birth or something like a funeral, a celebration, or something, you know, for tradition. And we would just not just slaughter a thousand cows or just mass breed a lot of animals for nothing because we have respect for animals. Like when you think of Africa, the first thing you think about is an animal, anyone in the world. So we have respect for animals. That's why I say that veganism originated in Africa. And this this thing about people saying that, no, when as soon as you see an African chicken, no, maybe that might be for an American, but it's not for Africa. Because people need to understand like, not to sound controversial or anything, but people, a lot of people don't realize something about slavery. Someone came and took us and put us all in a boat. Whether we came from Egypt, South Africa, Namibia, these are all separate countries. People just look at Africa as one state, but it's not. We've got separate individual countries. And they checked us all. They put us into one boat. We had different cultures, different languages, different anything. And then we were forced to just become one. That's why it's just simply called African American, because they can't, there's no way of identifying where exactly in Africa you come from. So the state of veganism in Africa, I believe is that we're going back to our roots. And it's about like people like me just telling you, no, 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 no. Listen, (laughs) I don't believe in what you're saying that when you think about Africa, there's a plate of meat. When you put a plate of meat, I get, I can't even eat a plate of meat. Like we, we were hunters. We were gatherers and we're going back to our roots and our culture. So that's very important.
1: Uh, It's very, that's very powerful. And I I think that's an enormously important message that you're bringing. It kind of reminds me too, of conversations I've had with people from South America. The indigenous populations there also had, particularly in Mexico, had very totally plant-based diets. Maybe not totally, like, as in Africa, the occasional celebration with um, hunting or whatever, but uh, and now has been just overcome with this idea that meat is is the food that you should desire, and with with the same horrible results. So the whole idea of colonization and and of course not so much slave, not the not the slave trade in the way it was in Africa, but all of these things, I think. Go together with with this enormous meat consumption, and it shows in how unhealthy it is. I mean, yeah. you've you've pointed out that for people of color, meat it it isn't just it's unhealthy for everybody, but it's much worse, isn't it? And
2: that's the funny thing because meat is so much worse for me than it is for a person of non color. Or I'm I'm getting too old because I I grew up in New York and. New York City was like, if you're not white, you're black. Whether you're Chinese, Indian, whatever, if you're not white, you're black. As a person who's not white, the white is white. And then if you're not white, you're a person of color. If we eat meat, our health deteriorates. Because why I say that is that we can eat the same amount of meat as a white person. But then if a white person gets a disease, they can identify that disease quicker than a black person or a person of color and fix that problem and rectify it quickly. But then I think diseases take a little bit longer to be identified in people of color or people who have any skin tone because and health, it impacts our health. And it's been figured out that if you go on a plant-based diet and you have a disease or any health problem, it helps you, especially as a person of color. But it comes to things like, the health system the medicine system the pharmacy industry whereby all of these these pills and these vitamins these whatnots that people have they're all natural and they've all been developed like you can go to the bush and the amazon you can come to africa you can go anywhere these cures are there but then they're being put into a pill and manufactured in the pharmacy industry that and more negative things are being put in them. So if we promote the vegan diets as anyone of color, it, it's very bad for the, the hospital, the health industry. So that's why it just comes back to things that people know of, which is like, this is open secrets that if you go to the hood in Brooklyn, you'll find a lot of bottle stores, um, liquor stores, but you will never find like healthy healthy things or things that benefit us. But then if you go to, I don't know, Roosevelt Island in America, <laughs> you will find your 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 pharmacy and your this and your that, but then you won't find so many liquor stores, which is it's because of the demographic of people who live in certain areas. That's why health in terms of Africans, we are not healthy because we we're told, they took away our power. Like all of these things, I hate to say, no, it's because of colonization. I'm not blaming a specific thing because it's been a couple of years and we've had enough time. Any community needs time to develop, but then it's just our mindset that needs to shift.
1: Yeah, well, I would say that's true of virtually everybody in the world, not just in Africa. But we kind of drifted away from talking about the ranger work and there were a few more come questions I wanted to ask because aside from the health implications, of course, for our listeners and for many of you, the animals, and I know for Damien, the animals are you know an, a hugely important part of this shift as well. and and I have heard that for when these rangers come in and when they work, some of them become extremely passionate about the animals. and that was clear in the movie I saw and and from what I've read and and I'm just curious, and you had just mentioned that the children you're teaching, become very sensitive even to the farm animals like even to the to the goats or, or whoever it might be uh you know in their actual lives not just the wild animals I'm wondering like for the women is this a common thing that it because that there are so many people who care about the very very beautiful particularly in Africa the extraordinary animals that are present there but don't necessarily extend that to all animals do you see that happening yeah definitely in
2: particular with the rangers, the Akashinga rangers, they, they're they very passionate about their animals in general, be it any type of animal. But, um, no, but in Africa, people will be passionate about a lion, but they won't give two cents about a cat, like a, no. a house cat, yeah. because superstitions, like, no, 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 no. But then with the Akashinga rangers, they're going into the communities and they're teaching people that it's not just about the lions in the bush. It's also about anything that breeds and lives. And, you know, they're, they're teaching even an ant, like a tiny little ants. We care about that and we're teaching people. So yeah, definitely there's a shift, there's a change.
1: So what about, are people also talking about and spreading the word about climate and the implications for the growing factory farm industry in Africa on, on climate change?
2: Is that an issue? Definitely an issue. Um, Slowly but surely, people are now. Yeah, and same here, yeah. A little bit more light needs to be shed. In the rural community, when people speak about climate, it's more about weather, <laughs> like when is it going to rain? What, yeah. what, like, And slowly but surely, people are now. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's very real in in <laughs> a rural area where people grow food. It's, it's not just an abstraction. It's right there every day. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you see veganism as a as a political issue? Do you relate it to Black Lives Matter? Is it part of, are all these issues connected for you?
2: When it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement, I, as Chef Cola, don't think that veganism and the Black Lives movement go hand in hand. Why I say that is because I literally thought about it and I went back to just the civil rights movement in general, like in America. There was, not, there was no mention about diets in the civil rights movements in history. Maybe the, the, the leaders who were running the civil rights movement were on plant-based vegan diets, and they did it for their own religious benefits and views, but then they never did it for political reasons. Malcolm X wasn't a vegan for political reasons. <laughs> it's a very tricky question. I do stand for the movement, no doubt, um, but veganism and Black Lives Matter, maybe I need to be educated a little bit more or maybe the light needs to be shined on, st- maybe there's still untold stories that I don't know of that helped mold such political views in, in terms of veganism, but I don't know of them yet. And if they are, then people need to start like throwing them at me or saying something, but At this stance, no, because a hungry man is an angry man, and whether it's a cause for this or that, whether it's a cause for blue or yellow or green, I don't think that veganism has anything to do with politics. Yeah, it's yeah, I'm probably gonna get in trouble for that a couple years down the line.
1: I don't think that you would get in trouble with that for that at all because you're being so honest about about where you stand and, and, and what, what more you want to know. And instead of like making up an answer that just sounds good, I think that's the best <laughs> way to answer anything. What about your story? How did you end up finding out about what's going on with animals, what's going on with food, going vegan? I was born
2: in Zimbabwe and then I was raised in New York City. Moved back to Zimbabwe for a little bit. Then I, came, I went to college in Cape Town, South Africa where I studied hospitality management. And during my third year, I had to find my own internship. And they said that you can get into any department within the hospitality industry. And the kitchen is a department in the hospitality industry. So I found a job as a a chef and I didn't know that it was a plant-based restaurant or a vegan restaurant. (laughs) And literally, I was so good at my job that I went from scullery to chef, just a normal daytime chef, to becoming the head chef of one of the founding um, vegan restaurants in South Africa. So that's how it fell into my life. So it was like a blessing.
1: That's a crazy (laughs) story. (laughs) It's like it was meant to be. You were catapulted into this. Yeah. (laughs) What what restaurant? And was it in uh, Cape Town or Johannesburg? Yeah. In Cape Town. It's called Plants.
2: Yeah. So it's one of the like original vegan top-notch restaurants in South Africa.
1: That is a great, I love that story. I was in South Africa, but only in Johannesburg. It was a very short trip for a speaking engagement, but I was only in Johannesburg and there was, I think, one vegan restaurant at the time. It was many years (laughs) ago. And so it was probably the, the, I was in the, the Johannesburg equivalent of the restaurant that, started your career.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. It's so funny that you didn't know it was a vegan restaurant.
2: <laughs> I was just looking, I was trying to graduate and they said, look for a department.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, that brings up the issue before I let you go. I, I just think it's, it's so interesting that, that, the veganism is coming at it, us from two directions you were working in a it was probably a fairly high-end restaurant very nice like like sophisticated and it was seen as this like new fancy cuisine and yet there's also the point you're making that veganism is part of, of of the everyday person's diet mm-hmm. in, in places like that and and it these two things are just have kind of run separately And I think they're starting to come together. You're one of the people who's bringing them together. Do you see it like that?
2: I am. I'm vocalizing it a lot. Um, I am not afraid to make people feel uncomfortable. When I speak about colonization, I'm not speaking about you. I'm not speaking about you or what you did. I'm speaking about history. You can speak about... Yeah,
1: I don't think you should feel uncomfortable about it at all. It's it's history.
2: It's history and... Mm -hmm. We need to learn our history. And I think I'm one of the people who are building a gap because when it comes to veganism, I've noticed three things. People think it's not for Black people or people of color. People think that the food tastes bad. And people think that it's very expensive. Those are the three main things that people, the reasons why people shy away from veganism. And I'm building that gap where the vegan... you you, especially as people foodies or chefs or people in in a nutritious industry you have a responsibility especially as a vegan chef not to just make a beautiful dish that's colorful and be like oh wow like make sure it's (laughs) got nutritional value make sure it tastes nice because it can look beautiful and then just taste like a brick you know you you've gotta make things balanced make sure that you you teach people how to grow their own ingredients, how to use indigenous ingredients within your own community, ETC, and just teach people how to shop. And there's there's a whole community of people who are not just white people who are vegan. What about the rastas? What about people from Kenya, Ethiopia? There's a lot of people who do it for other reasons. So it's just about unlearning, you know? So yeah. that's the, that's... My aim to build a bridge.
1: <laughs> so much of life seems to be about unlearning. Is it? it's just it's a little alarming how 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 many lies we are told or how many falsehoods anyway, whether people are lying or not. The black vegan movement in 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 the U.S. is the most vibrant part of veganism right now. Uh, it, it's hugely vibrant.
2: It doesn't make sense. Like you, the black vegan movement shouldn't be based on veganism. Because people are gonna be like, "Well, I never was vegan." <laughs> no one is gonna actually take the time to understand. Like, it's weird to me as an African, as a pure African, I haven't grown up in New York, so it's kind of weird. Like, why? <laughs> but I guess it's like now trying to build bridges and speak to an African American and be like, "Why do you say that?" And maybe they can make me understand, and I can make them understand. Like, no.
1: Well, i I think you. It, uh, the, I think it's a very exci- actually a really exciting thing that that so many people in this country are are turning to veganism for exactly the same reasons they've articulated about about Africa that the cultural history points towards veganism, that health points towards veganism. There's so the climate points towards veganism. There are so many reasons, and that spirit is really
2: growing it makes sense when you like now you kind of shifted my mind like, Oh, okay. I get it now. You, okay. I get it. You. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's,
1: a, it, 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 it's a great thing. I I love to see veganism growing anywhere, but it is yeah, a great thing. Sure. And this has been such a great conversation ship, Cola. I'm really grateful to you for joining us. We did have a little trouble getting ourselves connected, but uh it worked. And and we managed to, um we managed to get our conversation in and I'm, it's really been fascinating. And I, I'm so looking forward to seeing what you're going to be doing in the future. Yeah. What have I not asked you that I should have? Are, uh, and what, how can people connect with you and support what you're doing?
2: You can find me through African Vegan on the Budget on Facebook, Instagram, on all social media profiles, excuse me, and also via the International Anti-Poaching Foundation on all social medias. And also what I am doing for 2021 is I'm going to be coming out with two cookbooks. So one is going to...
1: Yay, (laughs) that is super exciting.
2: (laughs) One is under the international anti-culture umbrella, because a lot of people are asking what do people eat in rural Zimbabwe. So we're going to come out with a cookbook and one under the African vegan on the budget umbrella. So two cookbooks in 2021.
1: (laughs) That is really super exciting. Are you still doing the, the chef jackets? Are you, or yeah? So tell people <laughs> about them too, because they are absolutely beautiful. Thank you. So I have a private line
2: of customized chef jackets that are African inspired. So they can, I think my last order actually came from Mexico when someone ordered um, a chef jacket. So I, I'm all the way in Zimbabwe. So it's, that was crazy. So that. <laughs> inspired chef jackets some some people don't like the too much prints on the chef jacket so you can just get the collar something that's african inspired or just even on the insides but yeah. yeah
1: yeah no I've seen them online and they are uh, they're like amazing there's typical white chef jacket but with ink with African fabrics incorporated here and there in various ways in different yeah. jackets. So, everybody yeah. check them out online because they're, they're gorgeous. And this has been so exciting. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really grateful.
0: change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review.
1: Anxieties are rising. Animal Ag Watch by Hannah Thompson-Weeman is is reporting a little late, I have to say, on Matt Johnson from Direct Action Everywhere's stunt when he went on Fox News posing as the CEO of Smithfield Foods. I kind of can't talk about it without laughing. According to her, it was the finale to a year of ridiculous actions from DXC. And she lists among them, misrepresenting their identities to gain access to plants. Does she mean like petunias? Uh, No. She means slaughterhouses to install cameras. Well, actually, that seems like a pretty good idea. Protesting at the homes of meat company executives burying piglets. She doesn't mention that piglets were, I assume, dead. As well as spreading what they claim to be hog manure on their lawns. Well, that's a little stunty. I don't really object to it, but it is a real little stunty, I, I admit. Not ridiculous, though. And calling for a moratorium on factory farms and slaughterhouses in the state of California. Well, that ain't stunty at all as a first step to any animal agriculture nationwide. You know, it's interesting how she mixes like <laughs> uh, all of these all of these things together, spreading hog manure, calling for a moratorium. Pretty different, uh, pretty different concepts, I would say. But this is the this is the one she's most concerned about. And as much as they criticize it, make fun of it, uh, call it ridiculous. Obviously, it really got out under their skin. And when Matt Johnson appeared as a Smithfield executive and then started uh, talking about how terrible the meat industry was and how terrible Smithfield was. It's incredibly disheartening to see activists finish the year by stooping to a new low impersonating a food industry leader during a national news broadcast about the critically important topic of providing vaccines to frontline food industry workers. Yeah, yeah, honey. This, the actual executive from Smithfield cares a lot more about, about his workers than uh, Matt Johnson, I'm sure. Uh, you know, maybe not. This, <laughs> this is hilarious. This type of stunt undermines public trust in both the media and the food industry. We're talking about Fox media. And you know, I guess a lot of people have trust in it, but I would say already a hell of a lot of people don't trust it, a whole lot. And um, the food industry, does anybody have trust in it? And then she says, the food industry at a time when farmers, ranchers, processing plant workers, retail employees, restaurant service, and every other link in the food chain continues to go above and beyond. Well, you know, OK, he was making fun of Smithfield executives and impersonating them. Farmers, you know, we in the animal rights movement love farmers as long as they grow plants for us to eat. We like to eat as much as anybody. Ranchers, okay, yeah, all right, they're in. Processing plant workers, I would say we care about slaughterhouse plant workers a hell of a lot more than they seem to since they keep making them sick and not allowing them to sue and whatever. Retail employees, well, you know, (laughs) I don't think retail employees are really a main target here of the animal rights movement. Restaurant servers. I love restaurant servers. I love restaurants. They give me food and I love food. So, yeah, you know, Hannah wants to, like, pretend that we're all trying to attack all of those people, or at least Matt Johnson is, where he was really only trying to attack Smithfield. But this incident joins an extremely long list of examples of DXE's willingness to fabricate, oh, yeah, unlike Fox News or Smithfield, Manipulate an outright lie about animal agriculture and its efforts to bring an end to the industry. Oh yeah, this one got under their skin. It really got under their skin. All right, what's next? Regenuary. Did you hear about Regenuary? This is a campaign that got you know a fair amount of attention in the UK, and uh, it was mainly, on, I believe, on Instagram. But you know, got a lot of people following it. I think twenty four thousand, and it's on an account entitled the Ethical Butcher. And it calls on people to ditch Veganuary in favor of eating meat from, quote, regenerative farms. According to them, the movement is better for you and the earth than Veganuary. They say things uh, like like the, the human diet requires protein and fat, and not much of that grows here. Well, you know, if you actually look around, a hell of a lot of protein grows in, in the UK. And I don't think anybody's having trouble getting too much fat in their diet, really. If, if they are, like, tell them to come to me and uh, I can inform them how to do that easily, especially at this time of year. He's going on to say, especially at this time of year. So consumers try to fill the gaps with substitutes, which are heavily imported. I don't know how you get heavily imported, but, you know, I'm picking at things. And then simply sweeping out beef and pork for nuts and avocado You know, those aren't the only sources of fat in the world. It's worse for the environment than simply choosing to. uh, Avocados are are their their latest cause. It's the avocado eaters that are destroying the world, not the meat eaters, or at least not the regeneratively grown meat eaters. Unfortunately for vegans, (laughs) the avocado is one of history's most unethical fruits. I don't know, it's just very funny. Unethical fruit. As the demand for avocados has increased, so too has deforestation and pesticide use. Yeah. So we'll all grow a cow in our backyard. How's that? So, you know, we can that way we can just ignore the unbelievable devastation of uh, South America and other places because for beef and cattle production in those places. And we'll just ignore that and pretend we're all going to grow a cow in our backyard and it'll all be great. They even drag out the soy complaint. Soy has received fierce criticism for its role in the deforestation of South America. Now, actually, it has received fierce criticism, but it was all bullshit because the South America is being deforested for meat, not for soy. If all they were growing was soy, we'd be fine. So, actually, Plant-Based News, one of our fa- our favorite folks over at Plant-Based News, pointed out there was actually a parody site by a fitness guy called this is so such a british <laughs> would you guess that this guy is british alistair fitz disorger and he set up a, um i love that name satirical instagram he actually managed to get the account ethical butchers as opposed to ethical butcher that wasn't very careful of them and uh that uh This is what they say. Regenuary, whether you're eating vegan or omnivore, is all about eating foods that are local. So this is a guy who's into regenerative agriculture that are local, seasonal, and farmed using regenerative methods. Now, that really could save the world. Seriously, be as regenerative as you want. Just leave the animals out of it. That was fun. I love a satirical site. This should be a satirical site, but it's not. Meetingplace.com. And this is a new column, Omnivorous Opinions by Laura Zenger. Check out the name, Omnivorous Opinions. I just think this is such an interesting column. I don't know whether it will continue. The name indicates it will continue in the same vein. She is the manager of territory sales and host of the Market Digit podcast at Erner Barry, which, you know, of course, i never heard of. Their main focus there is animal protein buyers and sellers. But what you may not know, uh, says Laura, is that I am also part of a research team at Erner Barry that focuses on uncovering pricing and trends in the plant protein industry. Really interesting. And now she's got a calm on Meeting Place. Like, what's going on here? She starts out by saying, I eat meat and like it. I fire up the grill and make steaks, burgers, barbecue chicken, hot dogs, and sausage. You know, they always have to, like, prove their bona fide's by telling what they stuff in their mouth. But then she points out that she also loves a lot of meatless foods and goes through a list of them. Though there are hardcore extremists on both sides. I think we're, we're the hardcore extremists on the plant-based side. Because <laughs> uh, we don't think that you should murder animals. Oops. It's actually people that say they're murdering animals that are the problem. And they, But she also says there are hardcore extremists on the other side that just... Those who shout from the mountaintops that plant-based food is a fad and will go away. I don't see how that makes them heart an extremist, but it does make them completely wrong. But she points out, here's the thing. Most people are always going to eat some kind of animal protein. She puts it in italics to make it true. If that doesn't make it true, Laura, <laughs> it just doesn't. We don't know what most people are going to be eating, so let's leave off the italics. But... What she's really trying to do here is just make peace with the idea for the meat industry and for marketers in the meat industry that alternative proteins are fine. They're part of the market. They're never going to take over, but we shouldn't be putting them down. And there would be no market for these changes if the consumer didn't buy it, if people like me didn't want to try new things. So, you know, she wants everybody to make peace with it. I just, I think it's so interesting. Of course, I will not be satisfied until they're all gone. But, you know, this is a sign of the times. The protein space has been a playground for brilliant minds to find solutions for hungry people like me forever. Nothing about that needs to or should change. Well, you know, the only thing that's going to change, and I think she kind of agrees, is that the plant-based part of it is going to grow. I'm pretty excited about it. And so maybe that's not so anxious, but it's kind of a cool thing to read. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at At Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Herron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there, social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.